You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. All right, five fundamentals of greatness. Uh, Obviously, these are not complete, but we believe that these five things that we're sharing are essential and fundamental if you're going to lead a great life. And so we started uh, three weeks ago with godliness as this big umbrella, right? Now, the word godliness uh, can mean something different, especially if you didn't grow up in church. If you're here today, you know, you're not a church person and this is all new to you. Um, Got to go back to the podcast because we really break down the idea of godliness and why it matters and why that's what everybody really wants, right? But we share that godliness is a target, not only the aim, not only the thing that, that, that uh, calibrates your vision, but it is the thing that you aim at, the thing that you want to reach. Then we talked the following week, we were online, we talked about genuineness, and we shared three qualities of genuineness, really important, uh, to have a good name, to aim to have a good name. Uh, the second quality was a person of your word, the importance of being a person of your word, a person of integrity, a person of good character. And, and third was a person of consistency. It's really important, uh, especially for the long haul, to have a vision that's not just that microwave, I want things now, uh, instant gratification, but to value delayed gratification and to uh, be a person of consistency. You know, one of the examples that we used is you, you go, you, you might think that consistency uh, is not inspiring, right? Because you just, it sounds like you have to do the same thing over and over and over and over. But if you think about it, um, people who train, right? If you've been an athlete, uh, I'm not an athlete. I don't know if you can tell. I have to clarify that. Uh, <laughs> but I have friends who, uh, and family members who, have been actual professional athletes. And an athlete, they go to the gym every day. They work out every day. But guess what? In the consistency of working out, maybe the movements are the same. You're not lifting the same weights. You're not not staying at the same level as far as uh, your ability to play that sport. Same thing with the spiritual things. If you pray every day in a year, your prayer is not going to sound the same. The level of faith in your spirit is not going to sound the same. Uh, it's not going to feel the same. If you read your scriptures every year, your knowledge of the spiritual realm is not going to be the same. So you, you, you're consistent, consistent in things, but you don't stay the same. That's how you grow, right? And then last week, we talked about gratitude. We had uh, two people from our church share, Catherine and Dan, and they, Dan shared a testimony in his life how you know, God has been there for him. And Catherine shared a couple of points that were very valuable. We shared also that to be grateful is to remember and that gratitude is the glue between where you have been and where you hope to be. So today I want to continue with the fourth fundamental of greatness. I wanted to give you a recap because uh, this fourth one kind of ties to the other ones. And this is the fundamental of gladness. Gladness. We've made all the words G, so you can remember, right? Gladness. Now, what is gladness? Have you thought about that? What is gladness? If you were to explain gladness to somebody, you might use synonyms, 
You might use words that represent gladness, words like joy, happiness, laughter, a sense of satisfaction. But what is that? What are those things? Right? Is, is, is gladness a feeling? Is it a, a moment of exhilaration? Is it that feeling of excitement that you get from time to time? Is gladness the ability to be up and high all the time? And is that even the design that God has for us or how we're supposed to live? Just high up and happy all the time. See, when the late comedian Robin Williams committed suicide, it, it shocked everybody. I was shocked. And it shocked our nation. One of the questions that I got often was, how can someone who may, has made us laugh so much, somebody who's always happy on TV, so much joy, giving out so much joy, be so depressed at the same time to the point of death? It's a, it's a conundrum. It's, it's a... It's a thing hard to understand. And people who have faced depression understand it. They can connect to that. See, gladness, the gladness of the scriptures, the gladness I'm talking about, is not a temporary emotional high. But it's a constant stream on the core of that person. It's a stream that sustains, that remains in good times and in bad times. Gladness that we're talking about is it's with you on the mountaintops and it's with you in the valleys. On the mountaintops, it keeps you grounded so that you remember who you are, so that you don't lose sight of who you are and you, get, you don't get caught up on the excitement of the praise and the success that you forget who you are. And in the valley, it keeps your head up high. Reassuring you that this present trial is not the end. That what you are going through in that moment is not your whole story. But it's only part of the story. See, this gladness is a stream that flows. Not from the regrets you've had. Not from your past failures. But not even from your victories. Not even from the memories of past victories. For it doesn't cause you to live in the past. This gladness flows from a promise. The promise that God has made you. I will be with you always until the end of the age. Gladness looks forward. And God's gladness, the gladness that he has for us, it, it causes us to look forward in hope. So I want to take you to a story in the scripture that popped off the pages of the scripture to me this week as I was studying and preparing and researching. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a situation like that where you read a scripture that you've read multiple times before. And I probably had this, have read this scripture hundreds of times because it's a very well-known scripture of, of, of the life of Jesus. But somehow something new popped off this story. And I love that the scriptures, it, that's how it is. It's the bottomless well, right? Every time you go to it, there's something new that speaks to you. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 16. It says this. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Okay, so there are a few things about the scripture that we have to break down and, and give you a little bit of context. Because at face value, this is not the primary scripture you would go for for gladness, right? Jesus flipping tables at the temple and mad at the money changers. Gladness. All right. So, so let's, let's break it down a little bit. Because what had happened just before this passage is that in that same day, Jesus had entered Jerusalem. His ministry had already you know, gained fame. Everybody had already heard of Jesus throughout uh, the, all Judea. He was, he was famous in Judea for his ministry. Um, some people thought he was a prophet. Some people thought he was the king to come, that he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel and kick out the Romans. And some people recognized him as the Christ, the Messiah. But they didn't even know what, what it meant to be the Messiah, right? At least not until later. So he, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Scripture calls it the triumphal entry. And people are laying down their coats. They're laying down palm, palm tree leaves uh, as a sign of honor. And as he rides in, people are singing what the children are singing in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. It's an outcry of praise, of joy, of jubilee, but also declaring him king. Declaring him as the authority over all. And in that moment, with the support of the people, with everybody, you know, listening to Jesus, Jesus goes into the temple and <clears throat> he flips some tables. Now, this passage is closer to us than you might think. It's difficult for us to understand what Jesus actually did because we are not part of a culture uh, that has the rituals that were a part of their day-to-day -day life. So it's difficult for us to understand how bad what they were doing actually was. See, these guys were not selling milk or eggs or bread. They were not like selling hot dogs and popcorn or church merch, right? Jesus wasn't flipping nuts for nut stands. <laughs> Have you ever had those? Those are delicious. The coconut, toasted coconut. Oh my God. I love the, 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 the little guys in New York City. When we first moved here from Texas, uh, the first year we had a lot of people come through from, from Texas and other parts that, that we know. They would come and visit, and I would take them to the city. And every, the, the tradition was like, you have to have some street meat. <laughs> you, have to, you have to do it. You've got to do it. And I would never eat it. I would just have them do it. <laughs> How about you? And I, just, I just ate. I just ate. You get the hot. Get, yeah, you got to get the... <laughs> Not a lot of them got sick, right? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> got to pay the toll, man. <laughs> That's not what Jesus was against. See, what, this is what they were doing. They were requiring people to buy their animals, to buy their products, to use their coins for the offering. 
for worship. It's hard for us to connect, but if I were to paint a picture to you of how awful this was, I want you to imagine that you're going to visit a friend that you just met. And you met somebody, you guys clicked. Maybe, you know, it's a couple or it's a friend, and <coughs> you're coming over to their house. And as is customary, you're coming over to their house for the first time. What do you do? You bring something, right? You're not going to come empty-handed. So you bring, let's say you want to bring flowers and a bottle of wine, right? And you go out and you pick out the bottle of wine and you get some nice flowers. And you come, maybe, maybe you come with your wife or your husband or, you know, your significant other. Or, or, you know, you come to the house. And I want you to imagine that as you pull up and you start walking to their front door, on their front lawn, there's a stand, And their nephew is sitting on the stand. And on that table, he has wine and flowers. And you go in and say hi, and you try to pass by him. And he says, whoa, hold up. Where are you going? What do you think you're doing? And you say, no, I'm here to meet with my friend. We're, you know, we were invited. And we're here. Can we? And he says, no, no, no. What do you have in your hands? I got some flowers and wine that I bought. Thank you, sir. And they said, no, you can't bring your own wine. You have to, if you're going to bring him wine, you have to bring the wine that I have and the flowers that I have. Now, at this point, you're probably laughing, right? Because it's comical. Like, what, what is this? I said, no, no, they're not going to accept your wine. The only wine that you can get is mine. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll play. I'll play along. All right. How much for the wine? $150 for the wine, $100 for the flowers, if you want to go in. What would you do? Wouldn't you flip some tables? That's the only wine they will receive. Like, you're like, I don't know if I want to be friends with this person. Now, this was not a social call. This was not something voluntary, and this was not a one-time thing. These people had to come. This was part of their law. They had to come and offer God sin offerings. They had to come and bring to God for their, for their forgiveness. Sometimes a lamb, sometimes a pigeon, sometimes money offerings. And these guys were saying, uh-uh, you can't bring your own. You got to buy ours. You got to use our money if you're going to go in the temple to worship God. And what's interesting, what I, find, what I find interesting about this story is not just that this was so horrible, but that people went along with it. Somehow corruption infiltrated the culture to such a way that everybody was numb to it. And it took Jesus to look at that situation and flip tables. Nobody was aware of how horrible that was. To me, that's the thing that, that gets me. Like It took Jesus to come and flip some tables. And so he did. And nobody did anything about it because they knew. See, corruption creeps. And it creeps when we are not aware. And it just comes in. And before we realize, things are not as they should be. Everybody was going along with the flow of what was happening. And this is the first thing that we need to pay attention because this applies to our lives. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. See, every single one of us, we were made for a purpose. We were designed for a purpose. And God prizes you and he prizes your life. And if anything comes in to disturb the optimal way that he created you to live, he will intervene when you invite him into your life. Right? So think about this. Jesus' way is the way of life. Jesus' way is the way of truth. And when you decide to follow Jesus, when you make that decision, when you say, I will follow Jesus, this is the way that I want to live. You're not only following the way that finds you in the mire of sin, that finds you and embraces you in the problem that you were, in the shame that you were, in the things that you did, that you were out of your mind or wherever God, wherever God found you. He not only pulls you out of that and rescues you and restores you, but you're also following the way of Christ who says, go and sin no more. You follow the way of the one who walks into the temple of your life and flips some tables. Because that's what he does. He will turn the things in your life that are out of order upside down. He'll do it. See, before Jesus, maybe you did things that were, for you, that were okay. And maybe you were even fond of them. You even enjoy them. Just like the money changers, you were using something that was built for a holy purpose. And you were using it for selfish and sinful gain. And you weren't even aware because you kind of grew up in, in the money changing and the, the, the tables were set up already, right? I imagine how long, how many generations had experienced that. People just, that was just the way things were. They didn't know any different. And sometimes that happens to us too. We just, that's the way we were raised. It's the culture that we were brought in. It's, it's the environment of our families. Like it's the things that we were exposed to. It's just it's the, the way things have always been. And maybe that was your reality when Christ met you. And maybe it even felt good. Some of those things that you were involved in. But guess what? Jesus had, ne- had not been invited into your life yet. So you try to function the best way. With the capacity that you had, with the vision that you had, with the abilities that you had. You try to function the best way possible within that context. But then you invited God into your life. Then your spirit was open. Your mind was open to this new dimension. To the life of God. And his entrance in your life might have been triumphal, right? Just like the entrance that Jesus had in Jerusalem. The moment of salvation was clear. You saw his way as the way. There was a revelation in your heart and you were able to see it. I want, to, I want my life to look like that. That's what I want. I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of freedom. I want that liberty to be part of me. I want to live with that kind of truth and peace. I need this God. I need this transcendent power. That source of joy. That source of peace and love. But the moment Jesus walks into your temple. Into your life. Right? 
That's the moment when you have given him invitation and you have given him the consent because if he's going to be your Lord, if he's going to be your Savior, and you're giving him the freedom, like the scripture said, whatever he finds in your life that is destroying your temple, so to speak, he's going to flip those tables. So things that were no longer okay your perspective began to change on those things. There were some things that used to be okay that are no longer okay. And guess what? Sometimes that's painful, especially if you love those tables. Especially if you don't want to let go of those tables. Almost like, it's almost as though life gets worse for a period. If you're fond of the money changers. And this is a defining moment for those who follow Christ. This is the defining moment for those who are considering a life with God. And if you're here today and maybe you don't have a relationship with God and you're trying to figure it out, man, and you're here because somebody invited you or you saw our Google ad, right? The evangelist Google. <laughs> or maybe, you know, you, you were just, you, you felt like you needed something and you're still considering. You have to know this. If you open your heart, your heart to God and you let him in, he's going to switch some things around. It's going to be a process. And it's not going to be always pretty and, and planting flowers with Jesus. It's not always going to be a bed of roses. Yes, you will have a conviction of his truth. Yes, you will have a conviction of his goodness. But then he's going to, he's going to adjust some things. It's going, to, it's, going to, it's, going to take, it's going to take some clarity of mind and some determination for you to continue on that path. This is a defining moment. Because this is the moment that God begins to restore you. He begins to restore your sound judgment. You don't think the same anymore. See, you were used to be seen as an object. You just got used to it. This is the world you grew up in. And, and you got used to it. And you just rolled with it. You made the most of it. But now you understand that you are holy. You see yourself as holy. You used to say anything for money. Your own words were worth less than your wallet. But now you realize my words are holy. You used to manipulate people. They were tools for you. Like you, you used to get your way with people. Because for you, they were just a way for you to get to your destination. But now you realize every person is a child of God. And you see them as God sees you and as God, as God sees them. What is that? That's Jesus flipping some tables in your heart. That's him flipping some tables in the way that you think. You don't think the same. You don't see the world the same. And your sense of judgment now begins to be shaped after Christ's way. And this is when you begin to tap into that stream of gladness that we talked about. This is when you begin to, your, your, your mind begins to switch because your, 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 your spirit and your soul now is extracted from the system of this world. The system that keeps you in that, in that never-ending loop of power, money, relationships, and what I, what I have to do to look good and to, to, be, to attain some sort of success. And you, you're in that neurosis, right? It's almost neurotic. You, you, you're, never, you're never enough. You're never getting to... You never have enough. You never have enough, you know, success or clout or whatever. And God is, begins to extract you out of that and, and place you in what he calls the kingdom 
of peace. The kingdom of this marvelous light. Where you can see things clearly. You can see things for what they are. And the first step toward that sustaining gladness in this new mode of living is a change in values. God will begin to change our values. He is going to reorganize the priorities. See, at first you were sitting on the, seated on the throne of your life. But now you begin to see things God's way. And it has to start here. It has to start with God reorganizing your values because we live in a fallen world. And we can't see things clearly. Our world is corrupt. It corrupts our values. It corrupts our pursuits. So there's a passage in Hebrews 1.9 that I believe the moment that change begins in your life, this passage begins to be true in your life. Hebrews 1.9 says this, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's, it's a spirit that comes over you. I love that it says the oil of gladness because it's something that God puts, over, puts on you. And it's almost an anointing that falls over you where you, you have a sense of gladness in your life. You have a sense of joy, a sense of contentment. It doesn't mean that everything is perfect. You're still fighting your battles. You're still going through circumstances, but there's this sustaining stream in your life of gladness. You're joyful. You're connected to God. You know that he has a purpose for your life. You know that your future is in his hands, and you don't have to worry. So you used to love and live for whatever pleased you. You used to love and live and just consume and feed the hungry monster within. Whatever you wanted, you just went for it. But now, things are a little different. Now you live for whatever pleases God. And it sounds weird to say it out loud, but in your heart, that's the way it is. And the reason being is that you realize that for some of you, the things that pleased you were actually not good for you. Problem is that you only found out after the fact when it was too late. But that's true for a lot of us. The things that please us are not actually good for us. Can anybody say soda, candy, pizza, donuts? <laughs> Many of the things we love are not good for us. But loving righteousness, as the scripture says, that's good for us. Now, loving righteousness doesn't mean that you're self-righteous. That now you're judging everybody. It means that you love doing what's right. You gain an affection for living rightly. You gain an affection for doing the right thing. You wake up in the morning and you're excited to do the right thing. To live life rightly. And you hate wickedness. That doesn't mean that you hate people. That doesn't mean that you even hate people who do wicked things. You see it for what it is. Wickedness as a cancer in the soul of a person. And you don't want that in your life. So you run away from wickedness. You don't want that in your life. You don't want, you don't want any of that. You still love people. You still maintain your relationships. But you don't want wickedness in your life. Because you love 
righteousness. See, that's the moment where healing comes. Remember in the scripture, Jesus came into the temple, he cleaned the temple, and healing began to flow. See, when Jesus changes our values and he flips our tables, he begins to heal our soul. When gladness enters in our heart, enters our heart, healing enters our hearts. Once our tables were flipped, Jesus begins to heal our soul. And sometimes we don't understand the healing process. So you may have not understood why that breakup happened. But that breakup that didn't make sense at the time was part of the healing process. Maybe the problem we went through didn't make sense at the time. But that was part of Jesus' process of healing and transforming you. You thought things were supposed to get easier. But they got tough. They got tough for a season. See, Jesus was dealing with the wrong attachments of your heart. Wrong values. Wrong things that needed to be righted. He was reorienting your life. And you might be there right now. This might be the season that you're in. You can't see clearly what's happening. You, you can't really see what's... You can't see a clear future. Can you trust the process? Can I ask you to trust Jesus and trust God and trust the process? Instead of holding on to your tables because that's all you've known. Instead of holding on to your tables because that's what you're used to. Can you let go and open your heart so that Jesus can heal you? See, I believe it's time for us to let our tables go and let the healing flow. Let our tables go. Let Jesus turn it upside down. Let him fix the things that are broken. And let the healing flow. See, and where there's healing, there's joy. Where there's healing, there's gladness. That's the oil of gladness that the scripture is talking about. Now, generally speaking, oil in the, in the scripture is not for cooking. There's a couple passages where oil is for cooking. But whole oil in the scriptures is a healing agent. And this is where all the, the essential oils people celebrate. Yes! Preach it! Oils heal. <laughs> I love when our house smells like peppermint. It's delicious. Love it. See, Jesus restores our hearts. He reorients our values. Healing happens and gladness begins to flow. And this is when you realize that your life is not connected to the things of this world. Your spirit and your heart are connected to a higher source. So the economy is not your source. God is your source. Culture is not your source. God is your source. Your source doesn't come from the way people value you, how, how the structures and the hierarchy uh, exists in the world. It's not money in the bank that gives you value. It's the life of God in you. And so you're free to love other people. You're not demanding from anybody. Instead of looking at others and the, 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 the places that you're in and thinking, oh, they should be doing this for me or they shouldn't be doing that for me. You're like, everything that I have comes from the Lord. I will trust him for the things that I need. How can I serve? How can I make the world better? How can I help those around me? How can I transform my place of work? How can I transform 
the business I work in? How can I be an agent of change in my school? How can I help my family do better and restore the relationships in my family? Because my source is God. I don't need people to give me identity or, or to provide me with what I need. I go to God for that. And that's when you begin to realize what a life healed, what a life restored looks like. Because when, that's when you are healed, restored, and you are a full person. You're complete in Christ. And you know that that's only possible because of the life of God in your heart, because of what Christ has done. And that's a place of gladness. That's when the children begin to sing for joy because they realize we're in, we're in the presence of something special here. See, the children in the passage symbolize the future, new generation, looking forward. And sometimes what happens is we get stuck in the past. And God wants something new in your life. He wants purity in your heart. He wants you to be pure again in your heart, to see the world with wonder, to see the world with awe. To be able to believe in the dream again. To be able to believe in the things that he has put in your heart again. And what happens is worry, difficulties, they just wear us down. Suffering and pain can weigh in our hearts so much that with the passing years, we get calloused. With the passing years, we get bitter. With the passing years, we stop believing and we live cynical. Well, not, that's not the life that God wants for us. Living our days cynical, not believing anything, not just existing in the world like everything is against you and nothing works for you and the heck with life. That's not a good way to live. So God wants to restore so that we can be like those children singing Hosanna to the son of David. No longer marred by the pain or the sins but open to the newness of life that God has. See, there's a time in our lives where it's no longer the time to lament. It's no longer the time to look back and be sorry for what has happened, but it's time to look forward and hold on to the hope that is ahead. There's a time in our lives where we got to get away from under the cloud of depression and sorrow and move into the hope and the joy that God has for us. There's a story in Nehemiah, and I'm going to close with this story uh, that connects to the message. Um, if you know the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is one of the few books in the Bible that's written in the first person. He wrote the book. And Nehemiah was uh, somebody who, out of the prayer of his heart, he felt the burden to go solve a problem for his people. The, the city of Jerusalem had his, their walls down. It was broken, dilapidated. It had been taken over. It was in shambles. So Nehemiah begins an effort to rebuild the walls of the city. And they do it. And it's amazing. Once they rebuilt the walls of the city, they found the book of the law. People had gone in exile. They had lost contact with the scriptures. They had lost contact with their history. They didn't remember who they were anymore. They were just under the pressure of exile. And so they gather everybody in the city square inside the walls. And the prophet or, or the, the, the priests begin to read 
from the book of the law. And they read the whole thing, the whole Pentateuch, the, all the five books of the law. And they read the book of the law. And by the end of it, the people were weeping. They were crying. Because in their hearts, they thought, what? We have lost this precious connection with, where we've, with who we are as a people. We forgot who we are. And they were so full of sorrow. And I want to read from Nehemiah the moment when God gives them a new command. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9 through 13 says this. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Something very interesting for us to make note of. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Three times they said, do not weep. Now, this is a natural emotion. You're going to get sad in life. This is not a, a rebuke on being sad and weeping. But what's happening here, it's, it's, it's very important because there comes a point where God will flip your tables Rebuild your walls, and you got to stop looking back. What you've done in the past, the sins you've committed, they are forgiven. The exile that you were in, it's in the past. There's no use for you to live your life looking backward, attached to the pain, to that sorrow, attached to that, that thing that's just anchoring you in a place of depression and sadness and anxiety. But the, 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 the priest in, in, in Nehemiah told the people, hold on to joy. Go eat some good food and drink some good wine, man. And celebrate. Put your place, your, your body, your, your life in a place of celebration. Looking forward to what God has for you and to what he has for your future. In the same way, there's a moment where yet you fought your battles. Yeah, you went through a difficult situation. Yes, this pandemic put a weight on your shoulders, a weight on your relationships, a weight on your marriage, a weight on your finances, a weight on your soul. You've been lonely. You've been alone. You've fought some things and maybe things that you're even dragging from before that have nothing to do with the pandemic. But the pandemic is so loud, you even feel embarrassed to share what, what's going on. And God is saying, you know what? Let it go. And, and allow some joy to enter into your heart. Let the joy of the Lord enter into your marriage and, and your perspective for the future. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'll tell you, if you tap into that gladness of existence, existing in God's presence, you will discover a, a deep well of strength that will allow you to face every difficulty. You're going to be able to look down on the challenges ahead of you. And without missing a beat, you will know that you were made to conquer it. And you might brace yourself for some of the things that you will face. 
some of the loss that you will suffer, some of the grief that you'll go through. Because we're all going to do that in life. But you can, you can be assured and confident that this deep well of gladness will sustain you in the joy that God has for you, regardless of the circumstances. Do you receive it today? Let me encourage you to let your tables go and let the healing flow in your life.